Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America. Member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have uh, someone I've actually followed his work for many, many years. His name is John Roke, and he is a uh, technician extraordinaire. Uh, he is one of those technical folks that other technicians talk about in hushed and reverent tones. You will find him to be... Uh, straightforward humble uh blunt in how he describes what he what he does if you're looking for somebody uh who has worked for george soros and worked for other storied shops to to be arrogant and uh suffer from a big head this is not the guy uh uh that exhibits any of that he is uh someone who um not only has worked at places like uh, Lehman Brothers and and Soros Funds Management, but has constantly improved his craft and constantly raised his own skill level and reputation within the industry, um, and is really insightful and really knowledgeable uh, about just about everything related to technical analysis. So if you are at all interested in charts and in investing and trading, if you want to know how some of the sausage is made on the technical side. Uh, you can't do much better than John Roke. So with no further uh, ado, my conversation with John Roke. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is John Roke. He is a technician extraordinaire and spent the first 21 years of his career as a sell-side analyst before being recruited to the buy side by uh, George Soros uh, and his hedge fund. Uh, he spent five years at Lehman Brothers, about a decade at Natexas Bleischroder, a few years at WJB Capital before he ended up uh, with Soros. He is now, uh, let's call it managing director and, and chief market strategist at a Soros-seeded hedge fund called Key Square Capital Management, John Roke. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Pleasure to be here. So you and I know each other for, for some time. I was always a fan of getting your research. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you do and, and how you do it. Uh, you were on the sell side for over 20 years. Most of what I know about your work is that you were a, a, a technician, a chart reader. Was that always your career? Did you start out as a technician or or how did you eventually evolved to that? Uh, I finished my MBA at Fordham University in 1990. Mm -hmm. and uh, like, Now called the Gabelli School, is that right? Uh, and like anybody else who probably graduated either uh, with an undergraduate degree in the mid-80s or an MBA in the early 90s, you probably wanted to work on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. uh, I found it difficult going. I you know, walked around my resume uh, back then and there was very little security in the building, so you were able to go in and deliver Just your resume. pre-9-11, you walk right. in wherever yeah. you wanted. It was, a, it was a great time. I got to meet the, the Sanford Bernstein just by doing that, just uh, happenstance. And there was an ad in the paper like guys of our age used to do. We used to look at the New York a Times newspaper, on a Sunday. Right. What's in the classifieds? Correct. And uh, there was a job for a, um, 
an analyst position at Safian Investment Research in oh, White Plains, sure. New York. That's way back when. Uh, it certainly is. Uh, Ken Safian uh, and his former partner, Ken Smilin, were top analysts on the street in the 70s. And uh, he ran a boutique investment shop. I applied to him. I sent a resume, a cover letter, and a copy of my thesis paper. And uh, Ken uh, was kind enough to hire me. So you, you come out of school with an MBA. You start working for a boutique research firm. How does that morph into... Uh, a CMT? How does that morph into technicals? Well, to be honest, I'm, I'm not a CMT, but I'll tell you how it morphed into technicals. So Ken Safian um, did a ton of economic work, but he also did a ton of technical work. Mm -hmm. In fact, he had a process in the late 60s, 70s called the dual market principle, mm -hmm. where he saw the market as being delineated between growth stocks and cyclical stocks at different points in an economic cycle. So he did a lot of cutting edge technical work, and uh, he allowed me to join in, to maintain and and create and keep economic uh, indicators as well as technical indicators. And I think it was sort of, um, you know, he opened the kimono, for lack of a better phrase, and I got to see a lot of things. I became very interested. Mm -hmm. So so how did that lead to charting? Well, uh, every single day, I, I know this will sound really old school or, or dinosaur-like, at the end of the day, I would print out 90 prices from my Bloomberg. There was one mm -hmm. Bloomberg in the whole shop. Right. And I would graph using pencil and a ruler and graph paper uh, the high, low, and closing prices for 90 stocks for every day for four years. You are you are not the only technician who said that. We, we've had from Jeff DeGraff to, to Luis Yamada to Paul Desmond to Ralph Acampora, it seems that this generation and the previous generation of people all graphed by hand in the early days. Well, of that was the only graph. way to do it when it really came down to it. Uh, the Mansfield charts used to be delivered on a Saturday morning to your house, but they were through Thursday prices. Explain what that is. That's people, So youngins aren't going to know what well, that is. Mansfield was, a, was out of uh, New Jersey. I think it was Jersey City, and it was a subscription pricing. And you sent in your check, and you would get New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ Amex charts. Like Weekly a giant charts. book would show. It was up. actually. It, it was almost like loose leaf paper. Right. That you could you could update stuff. Right. On you a would flip basis. through it, and uh, they were delivered on a Saturday Three ring morning. Binder is that right? Uh, you could put it in a binder, but um, I would end up flipping through it, throwing out the ones I didn't want, keeping the ones I did, and it came in cellophane paper. And some guy would drop it off like your newspaper on a Saturday morning on your front stoop. If I recall, they were located in Jersey City, so they could get. That's to right. New York City people quickly, yeah. as opposed to where, you know, being on the other side of the country. That's they had correct. to print it and then drop it off in the yeah, region. Yeah, it was an excellent service. The charts were easy to read, and uh, nobody had this sort of stuff at your home, right? Bloomberg right. coming into your house was-, was Unthinkable. Unthinkable You didn't then. have the internet. You didn't have the computing power. Right. You didn't have anything. Right. So, and then uh, Investors Business Daily, you could buy chart books from them. They would also be delivered on a weekly basis. That sort of took Mansfield and, and upgraded a little bit. Uh-huh. But those were the only ways to do it, really. That was it. So at what point did you say, gee, I'm a pure technician. I'm not really looking at a whole lot else besides technicals. Well, when at Safian Investment Research, I thought that doing it from a technical point of view allowed me to see a lot of things pretty darn quickly mm -hmm. rather than focusing on one thing and being in depth. And I like the overview aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, although uh, my thesis paper was on Connor peripherals and it was using you know, financial statement analysis, I was sort of wholly technical, and I've been wholly technical since. Ever since. So so let's talk about technicals a little bit. Um, what is it that charts actually measure, and why does that work? I think charts measure uh, the dynamic between 
buyers and sellers, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you're, an, uh, you're, you're a longtime uh, market participant, and you might say to me, well, John, for every buyer, there has to be a seller. And I'd say, I agree 100%. But technical analysis tells us who's more aggressive, the buyer or the seller. And I think that's a very important concept. So we might say, yeah, for every buyer, there's a seller. Yeah, but if I'm the buyer and I want to pay more for it because I really think it's going up, that is information that is readily available right. in there the may chart. There may not be a buyer or seller at every price. That's correct. So, so that's what determines. That's correct. I mean, if you think about it this way, um, you know, you might say to me that I'm buying this stock because it's cheap. And, and I'll say that's true, but it doesn't win because it stays cheap. Right. right, it wins because by definition it gets momentum and gets less cheap. Right, and I and, think and just just because something's cheap doesn't mean it's not going to get cheaper. That's correct. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is John Roke. He is the master technician who previously was working with George Soros. Now he works at a Soros-backed hedge fund called KeySquare Capital. Let's talk a little bit about technicals and. I'm assuming the audience is fairly uh, layperson. Explain exactly what technical analysis is for the layperson. I think technical analysis is about trend. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not about trading. There are some people who are really good at trading, but I'm not. And I think in the advent of machines at hyper speed, right. um, the less we talk about trading, the the likely we're going to be more successful at our trend following discipline. Mm -hmm. So I think technicals are about trend. Trend is the most is it, trend is the least, in my opinion, understood investment concept. However, because it's very hard to identify. So let let's let's go into trends a little bit. I I was always taught a trend is you you can as if you can draw a straight line across three points, you have a trend. Is it is that oversimplifying? No, it? I don't think it's oversimplifying it at all. But how many people do you know in the business are willing to stick with that trend until it's finished? As long as it's going in the same right direction, yeah. why would Richard you... Russell said the most difficult thing in the business is to stick with a bull market the entire way through. And the mo second most difficult thing in the business is to stay out of a bear market the entire way through. So I'd say trend following is pretty darn difficult. Richard Russell was pretty ahead of the game with that one. So what do you think are some of the bigger misconceptions about charts and, and technical analysis? Uh, I think the misconceptions are that technical analysis sees all. Uh, mm -hmm. It may be that it does, but no technical analyst sees all. That's intriguing. So uh, explain the difference between everything being there in price and not being able to recognize that from, from the charts. Well, just to give you an example, when I was at Soros Fund Management, I surveyed, uh, let's call it 12 technical types every week. And I asked them, buy, sell, or neutral on a 10 roster item list. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised how many people came back with items that were different from the person who had just responded. So you could have 12 people responding every week and there would be no quorum as to what, let's say, item A is doing. And so my former partner, Steve Chauvin at Lehman, was fond of saying, it's the singer, not the song. Okay, so I, I, that le naturally leads to the next question. How much of this is science and how much of this is art and, and somewhat subjective? I get the sense you're implying it's a little of both. I think it's a lot of both. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm I'm fond of this book that was that I read early in my career. It's it's not a it's not an investment book. It's a poker book. It's called Shut Up and Deal, and it's written by a guy named Jesse May. Okay. And I'm going to paraphrase it, and I'm going to cuff the uh, the comment. But in the book, he said, 
when you play poker, everybody wants to master the rules, right? Mm -hmm. When you raise, when you fold, right? That's important. He said, but, uh, but winning at poker is about mastering the luck. And I think that's appropriate for our business as well. So, so I would apply that to your question and say, it's a little bit of science. It's a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit of, um, poetry. It's, it's all those things put together. So, so how do we master luck? It, I always assume luck is to some degree random, although we've all heard the expression, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Or Branch Rickey said luck is the residue of design, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Right. All those things are appropriate. I think it is listening to the message in the charts mm -hmm. and not putting your biases into what you think it's telling you. How hard is it to keep your biases? I think it's out very hard, which is why sometimes uh, when I was on the sell side, I would send out charts that I would uh, reports entitled mystery charts, and I would say the first person who gets this question right, I'll buy him lunch next time I'm in their town. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised how many people would be quick to respond. And I would put the chart, I would put the technical characteristics of it, but I would take the title off of it. Uh -huh. And I think when people saw it without the title. They made a more objective decision than when they saw it with the title. And I think that's a good way to think about it. So I have a variation of that, which I, I call the uh indicator, that when you would talk about a name with somebody who is on the buy side, when you were on the sell side, if you would bring up the name and three out of four people go, uh, I can't touch that. That's a piece of junk. Hey, well, guess what? If everybody thinks that, it's probably already in the price. And it a little bit of momentum, and you have plenty of upside there. That's that's funny that you you did it by just pulling the names off. Of yeah. It. So when you revealed the names, what was generally the response to people who said this chart looks great? I'm excited about this. I think some people who had the uh, objectivity mm -hmm. uh, would say, "Oh well, okay. I don't care what the name is. The darn chart looks good. It must be that the story's pretty good." Mm -hmm. And other people might have been a little bit dismissive of it. Oh yeah, okay, but I'm not interested. But I think the but exercise- But they were before you told correct. them the name. Yeah, and I think the exercise sort of was a good exercise to allow them to say, hey, there's something there, and if we remove our biases, we can actually pick up some important information. So tell me a little bit about your process. When you were on the sell side, what did your daily research consist of, and how did that change once you moved to the buy side? So my process includes uh, trying, and I'm going to emphasize the word trying- <laughs> to monitor or pay attention to all sorts of traded prices, mm -hmm. bonds, their corresponding yields, commodities, currencies, sectors, indexes, stocks, across all sorts of time zones. Mm -hmm. And I built some screening tools, some scoring mechanisms that helped me do that. And like any other technical person or any other chart person, I look at a ton of charts mm -hmm. and I've taken that discipline from the sell side and I've tried to apply it on the buy side. So now that you're on the buy side, is your process very much different other than having to travel for work and, and sell a product? Short of that, is the research process still the same? I'd say it's pretty much the same. That, that's really um, quite interesting. One of the things I, I loved about when you were on the sell side, your written product, you would, you would similar to Ed Hyman, who's an economist, take a chart and mark it up by hand. Um, first, where did that idea come from? Well, well, I mean, you, you, you prefaced it. I mean, Ed Hyman taught us all that uh, annotating charts simply and clearly 
really goes a long way to making your research more palatable to the people who are paying for it. So he's the he's the godfather of it, to tell and, the truth. And you answered the second question, which is, what's the purpose of, of yeah, handwriting Yeah, I, I think it's chart. just so people become familiar with you and your research. And I think when people become familiar with you, there's a trust aspect that grows. And... Uh, you know, when for somebody who was formerly selling research, I think that's a really important concept uh, to building a business. You have to develop a trust aspect with the people who are going to pay you commission dollars for your research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is John Roke, and you have been working um, uh, for the past couple of years uh, for Soros Fund Management, which is George Soros's hedge fund. Um, what is it like working at such a storied firm like that? I'm going to try to create a metaphor. Uh, I think it was, uh, to me, it was sort of like being able to play basketball for University of North Carolina Tar Heels when Dean Smith was the coach. Okay. Or playing basketball for the UCLA Bruins when John Wooden was the coach. It mm -hmm. was sort of um, PhD macro. Um, Across the board. A, just a, a true honor for me to, to have been there. So I, I, we all recall the story, uh, I think it was told by Soros' son, that when his back started aching, started bothering him, he basically had to sell something to make the pain go away. A any truth to that? Well, I, I read the same story, but I would probably uh, say that was akin to a very strong intuition. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think after being in the business for a long period of time, we all develop intuitions that we uh, listen to you know, with, with a very uh, uh, you know, attentive ear. So he's known as a big macro trader, famously bet against the pound and a number of other really large macro bets. How does a technician fit into a shop like that, that at least publicly seems to be so macro event driven? I, I actually think it's a natural that macro and technical analysis are complementary, mm -hmm. uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, one of my favorite books in the business is a book entitled More Money Than God, which is written by Sebastian Malaby. Mm -hmm. And in it, you read about all of the storied hedge funds and about guys in our business whose faces are on the Mount Rushmore of investing, and you realize just how important technical analysis is, was or is to their process. I think it's just a natural, and uh, it, it wasn't a shock to me. Not a shock at all. The, it wasn't a shock pre to me. Pretty consistent. Um, it's funny, Malaby just put out the book on Greenspan, which I haven't gotten to. I haven't but, either. But I have more money than God at home, and it was uh, it's one of those things that's on my short list that I'm, that I'm going to get to. Um, so you move from the sell side to the buy side. When you were on the sell side, it, you were very much a public figure. You used to do conferences and television and everything. You go to the buy side, and it's radio silence. It what was that transition like? Was it, was it relaxing to kind of get out of the public eye, or... Did you miss a little of the back and forth give and take? Um, well, I, I got to tell you, for 20 years of, of, of doing shows like this with mm -hmm. people like you. There and, are no shows. Like <laughs> very <on>. nice. <laughs> or, or, or traveling uh, to market my product was a, was a great thrill. Being on Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser sure. was, uh, you know, one of, a bucket list kind of thing to do. But I'm, I'm equally happy being on the buy side. And, and I put all my uh, energy and emphasis in, into putting out product that I think is going to help Key Square Capital Management. So when you say put out product, I'm assuming there's an investment committee, you're participating in that, or there's some dialogue back and forth. How is advising on deploying capital different than selling a, a, a commission transaction? Or, or is it not different? 
I think an idea is an idea irrespective of which side of the business you're on. Mm -hmm. And I think the person that you're speaking to, uh, and I happen to be speaking to a, a person who is uh, intellectually open, uh, his name is Scott Besant, and uh, always willing to listen to an idea. And, and because he's like that, it gives me confidence to continue to present those ideas. It's sort of like uh, when you're on the sell side and you have a client that you get a, along with really well, you'll call that person all the time and you'll show that person all of your ideas mm -hmm. because they're, they're willing recipients of those ideas. And some of your clients, when you're on, when on, uh, being on the sell side, were probably less... Um, receptive? Receptive is a good word. And so I'm just, I've been lucky that the, the gentleman I'm working with now and have worked with uh, over five years is, is receptive to ideas and intellectually open and, uh, and willing to listen to my, my, my imagination. So Scott Besson, if the, I recall the name correctly, formerly CIO of Soros Fund Management, is that right? That's correct. And... I also recall you saying he's the person who recruited you to work it with Soros. That's exactly right. So I have to assume that he is a heavy hitter running Soros's money. That's a fairly substantial fund. Is it the same sort of investment process at Key Square that it was at Soros, or is it a little different? You know, Soros is now mostly running his own money, if I'm correct. Mostly? Um it's a family office. Family office, as opposed to KeySquare, where it's outside, a lot of outside yeah, investors. Uh, I, I think it is a macro-focused fund, and from that point of view, uh, it, it, it has a similar focus. My special guest today is John Roke. He is a technician uh, currently working for KeySquare Capital, which is a hedge fund seeded by George Soros. He worked on the sell side uh, at a number of storied shops, including Lehman Brothers, uh, for many years before going to work uh, at Soros Fund Management. Let, let's talk a little bit about your approach. You do some things that I find to be really interesting that I don't see a lot of other people doing. For example, I, I've noticed how you calculate market cap of sector and then put it against the S&P 500. Tell us what that actually accomplishes and how you uh, began doing that sort of Analysis. Okay, so uh, all credit goes to a former client of mine by the name of Bob Rossetti, who was at Morgan Stanley uh, Asset Management at the time, Morgan Stanley Capital Management. And uh, he was a very technically focused guy, mm -hmm. uh, although a fundamental guy, but very technically focused. And one day he said to me, you know, I have some data that might be of interest to you. And he shared the data with me, which was sort of like giving me the keys to the kingdom. How long ago was this? Gosh, this was in the 90s. Really? Yeah, this was in the mid-90s. So he says, here's the data showing, take take the cap of each sector yeah. versus the total capitalization Correct. of- Correct, and do it on a relative market cap basis. That's right, mm -hmm. as a percent of the S&P. And I thought that was, I mean, he really opened my eyes to a, a, a section of the market that I was formerly not aware of or how to use it in, a, in an analytical sense. And so I used it to great success, I'll say polite, uh, to, to some success um, <laughs> in two particular instances after that. Uh, one of them was as tech was making its apotheosis uh, in late 99 and early 2000. And tech had grown to be about a third of the weight of the S&P 500. Really? That's a On a market, relative market cap basis. And uh, when it first cracked, I knew that Icarus had flown too close to the sun. And I knew that we were going to have a very painful bear market, and it was going to be more than a flesh wound, to paraphrase the Black Knight from uh, Monty Python. <laughs> um, and so I, I thought tech was going to get destroyed. And uh, What's down 80% amongst friends? Well, and then in, uh, in 2006, 
the relative market cap of financials grew to be more than 20% of the S&P 500, cracked at 22 and a third at 22 and a half percent. And I thought that that was going to be really bad because the financials, not only did they have a big market cap, but even a technical guy would probably tell you how important they are to the economy. To say the least. Sure. And uh, so I used the, the, that analysis to, to um, some success at, at both of those important so, periods. So when you're looking at the cap relative to, to the broader index, what is that actually informing you other than those instances where you're at wild extremes? Or is that what you're looking for? I'm looking for wild extremes, but I'm also looking for trends within those relative market caps, mm -hmm. right? Relative market cap is sort of a way of saying relative price. Mm -hmm. And if relative market cap continues to steadily move higher, then I'm going to figure that the trend for that sector is intact, firm, strong, and advancing. And I should be looking for stocks in that sector that I should be biased toward the upside with. All right. So let's say you find a particular sector you like. How do you keep drilling down? from there? Do you look at subsectors? Do you go right to companies? When you pick a random sector that the trend is long, strong, firm. Where do you go from there? I want to find the biggest cap companies in that particular sector. Really? Why is that? Because for a fund of some size, uh -huh. it doesn't make much sense to focus on stocks of smaller market capitalizations because it's very difficult to move the needle. Right. So I want to focus on the largest market cap stocks in a sector that is trending because I think I can get the better, longer dated performance from those stocks. Right. You, you can't get enough of a small cap for a substantial fund to make any sort of difference. That's right. And, and the big stocks are always very liquid and I'm sure you could buy as much of that as you want. And if you needed to... Uh, Take out. yourself out of a position, right. you could do it with, with, with little dislocation. Huh, that's very interesting. So of late, you've been somewhat bearish on the financials. Um, how important are financials to the S&P and to the economy? Can we really have a bull market without the financials participating? Well, so I, I, I'm always going through my process and, mm -hmm. and always going through the now 11 S&P economic sectors. Financials are one of the 11. There were formerly 10. S&P broke out. REITs from the financials, now they're 11. And I noticed that during a 22-month period from December 2014 through October 2016, the financials had gone through four important setbacks, 9%, 14, 22, and 10 and a half. And they had underperformed the S&P during that 22-month period. So to have them as an underweight or to be cautious on them probably wasn't such a bad idea. Mm -hmm. In addition, at the same time, European banks and Japanese banks oh, were terrible. very poor. Awful. Right. And the only bank group that was doing pretty well of G7 markets was Canada. So to have avoided financials for that period wasn't such a bad idea. It no, was only in the last all. week where you really had a tremendous performance. Post-election. That's correct. But you know, when you have a geopolitical surprise like that, that isn't necessarily going to be reflected in in analysis beforehand. Everybody's playing because the Because it was just so darn sudden. Right. Right. And right. then, and so now, how do you look at financials today? Has has the recent move changed your mind, or does it look like a temporary spasm? Uh, so, quite recently, the uh, uh, S and P Diversified Bank Index was uh, was twenty two percent above its twenty two or twenty three percent above its two hundred day moving average. I'd say that's like an athlete who sprinted a long way very quickly in a short period of time. So it's a little ahead of itself? Just may need to rest. It could need to pause, but I would say that the pattern that's in there is 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 a very good technical setup. I, I'd also say with respect to the financials, during the period when they were underperforming, uh, I would ask myself, and 
my counterparties on the sell side, are we in a bull market? And more often than not, you'd hear people say yes, but during that entire time, the S&P was up maybe 2 or 3%. It's pretty much range-bound, right. sideways so, going uh, If you were in the FANG stocks, it was a bull market. Right. But I think if you were in the index, you would probably say it wasn't a bull market, but it wasn't a bear market either. So just a range-bound market. Look, we can't from the lows in 09 to, let's call it 13, um, market was up 200 plus yeah, percent. Right. That's a lot of motion in a real short period of time. You have to eventually catch your breath. The market has to digest those gains. I would a think bit. so. Um, so, so let me ask you a broader question, which you just made me think of. Uh, a lot of people say this market is long in the tooth because you have a nice run from 09 to 2016. That's seven years. But I always learned secular bull markets don't begin until you make new highs above the previous highs. And we didn't see that happen until. 2013. So first, do you look at the current situation as if we're in a secular bull market? And if we are, where would you date that to? So I think we've been in a, there was a 666 low right. in 2009. And uh, up from 09 to now, the cumulative return would say time and price, you have been in a bull market. Mm -hmm. But you got most of that through, let's call it, uh, the midpoint of 2014 or the autumn of 2014. And from the autumn of 2014 to now, you've really marked time by going sideways, although mm -hmm. it's been difficult and agita-filled. Right. But I tend not to think of things secularly or cyclically. I tend to think of things, can I make money on the long side or can I make money on the short side? That's the way I tend to approach things because I don't want to be locked into a viewpoint. Uh, that's really interesting. Over the past two years... Has it been easier to make money on the long side or the short side or none of the above? Uh, I think it's been uh, I think it's been equally difficult. Mm -hmm. I think it's been a very difficult period. Uh, the market, in my mind, uh, has been uh, it, the market is driven. Uh, um, ETFs drive stocks. Stocks don't drive ETFs. Mm -hmm. And I think the market on any given day can do just about anything because your algo is an aggressive buyer. And then my algo follows your algo, and my algo is an aggressive buyer. Um, but it has been exceedingly difficult. And um, I think were it not for the Fed pinning the Fed funds rate where it is, uh, perhaps uh, the environment might be a little bit different. Can, can you find another period in time in history that's comparable to this era, or is this truly unique? I think it's truly unique because of the central bank backdrop. That's, mm -hmm. my, that's my opinion. That, that, changes, that changes everything. Um, we mentioned uh, financials earlier. One of the things I know about your prior work, you use J.P. Morgan as a proxy for financials. I suspect that's because it goes back in history so long. But why one stock as opposed to a group of stocks? Uh, so my former partner at Lehman Brothers, Steve Chauvin, taught me about the uh, importance of bellwethers. So over time, I've tried to find and define sector or market bellwethers. Now, for a long time, you'll recall this, uh, people used General Motors. As General Motors went, so, so so went the market. People used IBM for a long time. We, Steve Chauvin and I, used General Electric. Uh -huh. And then uh, as you went into the mid-2000s, Citigroup was the most important stock in the entire world, not just the most really? important stock in the S&P 500. Well, that didn't work out too well. Well, it did work out very well because when it peaked, 
then you knew it was that was over. it. Correct. So it didn't work out well for Citigroup shareholders, but if you were paying attention to what Correct. Citi was doing- It told you a lot about Citi, it told you a lot about the banks, and it told you a lot about the market. So it was an excellent bellwether. W- when did Citi peak in the peak in Well, the it was 2000s? peaking in 2006, seven, right around the time when the financials as a percent of the S&P 500 got to about 22% on uh-huh. a relative market cap basis. So when Citi rolled over, that was it all was she wrote. It was sort of all she wrote. Yeah, that's And really- so I, I, use, uh, I think JP Morgan's a good bellwether, not only for- financials, but for the market as a whole. We've been speaking with John Roke. He is the technical strategist at KeySquare Capital Management, backed by George Soros. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out all our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things technical. Uh, Be sure and check out my daily column at BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your feedback and comments. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith Incorporated. Welcome to the podcast. John, thank you so much for doing this. I'm My really, pleasure, uh, Barry. You know, I've been a fan of yours for forever. I've Thanks. been reading your stuff for a long time, Thanks which is not easy to get. Your stuff was always hard to track down. Well, thanks. I was always horse trading with other people. <laughs> you, you, Hey, uh, you get Roke? Uh, get me that. <laughs> what do you got? I'll give you this. You give me that. that. You know what happens on the- I know. So that, that went on all the time, and it was, we were never- uh, a client we were never big enough to play uh in the pond where you played um there were a couple of questions i didn't get to that i really want to get to before we start our usual podcast stuff um why don't we jump right into the sports analogy since we were just sure. talking about you you we were uh, off air we were talking about um uh we were talking about listening to baseball and drawing the metaphor between Baseball on the radio versus financial television. You use a lot of sports analogies in your research. Now, is that because you're a sports junkie or is that because there's a metaphorical parallel between sports and investing? What, why all the, the baseball? In fact, just earlier we were talking about, um, you know, Soros's fund like. Like uh, playing for the Tar Heels, Heels yeah. or the Bruins. So I, I am a sports junkie, but I think that there are metaphorical examples that uh, transfer seamlessly, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. So uh, baseball people will tell you that Ted Williams is the greatest hitter of all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote a book entitled The Science of Hitting. And one of the chapters in the book is called Hit According to Your Style. Mm-hmm. And he relates uh, a story that was told to him or, or an anecdote that was told to him by Rogers Hornsby. Rogers, Roger with an S, right? <coughs> Rogers Hornsby, who is the greatest right-handed hitter of all time. He's the last right-handed hitter to hit 400, and he actually averaged 400 over five seasons. Really? The only guy, only guy in Major League history wow. to do that. He said to Williams that the single most important thing for a hitter was to get a good ball to hit. In other words, to swing at strikes. And I think the same thing can be applied to stocks. For example, you have to hit according to your style and not swing at stocks that are out of your strike zone. And I think that increases your chance of winning. Makes makes perfect sense. You've seen the the Buffett 
um, book that he recommended. So Warren Buffett recommended the Ted Williams book. And there's a graphic in the Ted Williams yeah, book famous. of the strike zone. Famous. And he somehow figured out, so I think it was like seven balls across the top of the strike zone. Yeah, because the plate is 17 inches across. Right, so it's seven widths and 16 or 20. Yeah, because he was about six foot three. Right, right, so he figured out the exact strike zone yep. and then somehow calculated his hitting percentage in of each, each and every... That's right. Which... Uh, he was a quant before any money, years before Moneyball was ever conceived. Right. He applied probabilities That's right. to hitting. Uh, really, people don't understand how brilliant he was as a mathematical hitter, not just as a big yeah, dumb Yeah, he was jock. way ahead of his time. He was cerebral, and uh, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, I... I, I... I read the book when I was a player. I bought the book and tried to help my sons with it when they were players. And um, I tried to use some of his uh, methods when I was coaching. Um, and I would just tell my kids, if it's good, you got to be swinging. And if you're in certain counts, you need to be a hitter. You can't be taking pitches. And I know it's inappropriate or, or not. It's not the right way to say it, but uh, no, uh, to little league players. But nobody ever went to the Hall of Fame being a good walker. You got there by being a good right. hitter. So you play where'd you play ball? I played in high school. I played a little while in college, and I played some semi-pro baseball as well. Oh, really? I, I was a pitcher, and I now have the torn rotator cuff. So you're to, not throwing uh, bat in practice. Um, no, not anymore. But um, I was accurate. I was fast. I had no breaking pitch, and that's why nothing after high school. <laughs> Wait, happens. you're supposed to make the the ball dry. I don't <laughs> throw that way. I just throw it as hard as I can. <laughs> so um, that's really – and I was deadly accurate. That was the, the best part strikes, of that. right. Yeah, well – corner a little little chin music whatever you had to do um so you played a uh, semi-pro that's that's great how how what's amazing at that level and we'll talk about a little math is you get one more hit a week and statistically you're just so far ahead of everybody else that's correct the the level of competition is is really amazing right. that's correct if you strike out one less time a week it's a big deal Huge, just a huge. Yeah. Ha, um, have you read much of uh, Michael Mobison's work on uh, luck and skill? Um, so I have been, uh, I have been able to sit in on some of his presentations. So the answer to that question is yes. I think he does some really good work about that. The the book, um, the success equation, separating yes. luck from skill in yeah. sports, investing in business. The irony is that the skill level is so high in professional sports that it turns out that luck matters a whole lot more than it does amongst amateurs. Yeah, without a doubt. And 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 they're playing a game in their head all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why and I've said to my son I said to my sons when during the playoffs in the World Series, if you really watch baseball closely, you'll watch that major league baseball players swing at pitches, not necessarily at strikes. And by that I mean you'll you'll be watching a game and you'll see a guy take a pitch right down the middle and you might say to yourself, how could he not swing at that? And the reason he wasn't swinging at it is because he wasn't guessing that for, on that pitch. Mm -hmm. You know, he got a fastball. He may have been looking for a curveball. He got a curveball. He may have been looking for a fastball. So they're they're guessing, right? And they're playing a mental game, a calculation game, or a game of probability versus the pitcher. And that's the reason that you know at that level, that sometimes you would say you, a younger guy, you'd say you have to be swinging in that situation. And sometimes they're not swinging because they're not guessing at that pitch. You know. Um... Uh, the coach of the Giants, um, who departed a couple of years Coughlin. ago. Coughlin. Right, uh, Tom Coughlin. I'm not a sports book fan, 
but he wrote a book called Earn the Right to Win. And he talks about, in the book, the research they were doing. All right, what is this opposition team? What do they do on on you know second and long? What do they do on third and short? What do they? And then every player would have to learn that. And some of the players really um, push back on it. And I'm trying to remember which was it Strahan? It was it was one of their um, defensive backs used to complain about it all the time. And then years later, he's playing for another team, and it's a, a, a bowl game situation. And it's third and short, and he says, all right, what do these guys do on third and short? And he realizes, I don't have this information. Oh, my God, Cochran was right. right. You, you need to have that prep. As big as a pain in the neck it, as it was, it was a decided advantage. And what you're describing with the batters, very similar. They're, if they know the pitcher, if they've studied him, they know their tendency. Yeah. People They're making a reasonable guess. All right, we're three and third and one. He tends to throw a breaking ball outside. I'm looking for. I like to hit those. Right. It, it's really fascinating. The whole. And I think the same thing applies to stocks. Right. You want to. You want to find a stock that fits your style. What's the tendency mm-hmm. of a stock to do something after it looks like it looks now? Mm-hmm. And so over time, you you recognize that a pattern looks like it does now, and that usually is followed by some reaction and that's because you tend to understand or you tend to have seen so many of them over time you mm-hmm. you tend to i don't want to say foretell but expect a certain result but that's why you look at hundreds of charts a night you do that for 20 years and eventually you really get a feel right for all right i've seen this pattern before and i exactly i know what right. the what tends to happen here exactly what right. what other sports metaphors apply to markets and investing i really think baseball is is about as good as there is uh-huh. um w- w- we could, you know, we could go into uh, uh, into basketball too, and I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of basketball metaphors too. Which, right, and you could see now that teams really want to shoot three pointers. They know that you're getting fifty percent more per basket made than you would be mm-hmm. when you're shooting a two pointer. Right, they want, despite the fact that some of them might be low percentage shots, but the reward is so much greater. And but from the corner, it's a really high percentage shot, because and it's, it's not that much well, further because away. It's, a, it, it's it's a it's a higher percentage shot because it's closer. Right. But conceivably, you're seeing less of the basket. It might be thought to be harder. When my father was a player, you know, when uh, they still had laces on basketballs, that right. he would have told you that's a poor percentage shot because you're not seeing the entire basket. Well, you're not getting the same depth perception because exactly right. you just see the rim floating. Exactly out there. right. But if you have a touch and if you know where that is, that's your closest three point shot you're going to make. And you see guys like Curry, they live in those corners. Oh, without a doubt. And, and I think... As did Michael Jordan when he was shooting threes. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, sort of an appropriate football metaphor is that uh, Brady and the, uh, the Patriots are so successful, not because he throws over the top to Gronkowski 30 yards down the field every time, but because he hits Edelman or Amendola or when they had Wes Walker, he would hit them in the flat for five or six yards, move down the field, move down the field, and then go over the top to Gronkowski, right? right? But but to set it up so that you're, you know, you're taking short gains, short gains, then it, you have a lead. It forces the backs to right, tighten up a little bit. And then you have bit. a lead, you know, the, the yardage is in your favor, and then you could go over the top to try to hit you know, a mixed metaphor home run. Right. Well, you know, that that's the the interesting thing about football is you're always trying to not just use each play to move the ball downfield, 
but each play subsequently sets up a, a ladder play. Are you are, are you throwing long and everybody's sitting back? Then they're giving you the, the shorter it's over the chess, middle. chess, not check. Right. It's checkers, not. Uh, pardon me. It's chess, not checkers, as Denzel Washington said to Ethan Hawke in Training Day. It, it's multiple steps right. down the road. Chess, and, not and, checkers. You know there are some players that have the mental game, have the physical game, and then have all the tools out there to hit. When you look at New England, I mean, that's really just an embarrassment of riches for a, a, a quarterback who's smart, who has good field vision, and could really and run by throw a coach the ball. who has a great system. Right. So it's 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 not a coincidence that those guys have um, have been winning as much as they have been over the past couple of years. Um, so. Give me a basketball metaphor. So it's the three-pointer, and and what else? What else is a good basketball metaphor? Oh boy, for investing. You know, uh, I keep coming back. So to- I, I think a good one is. I think a good one is is that. Uh, so I watch a lot of basketball. I watch a lot of high school basketball. My former CYO coach is a is, is a very high fam- school basketball. I watch really? a lot of high school basketball because my former CYO coach, who's a friend of mine, is perhaps the you know. He's a he's a, a Westchester County Hall of Fame basketball coach, and he wins about eighty percent of his games. Mm-hmm. And I, I watch the games a lot, and I, I sometimes I see uh, how they're playing or how they're winning, and and I wonder, you know, whereas sort of hit according to your style style in baseball or swing at strikes would be akin in basketball to making your free throws. Right. Right. Often in a high school game, the team that loses is the team that shot more poorly from the free throw line than their opponent. Really, that's interesting. So we can practice however many offensive sets or plays uh, that are in my playbook, um, but if our team doesn't hit our free throws, regardless of how many offensive plays we have, we're probably not going to play that well. What did you think about the, uh, I don't remember if it was the high school, the college coach, who every fourth down, he doesn't care. He goes yeah, for he it. Yeah, he goes for it. I, I love the a great, statistics on that. Yeah, the statistics were great. I remember that. Was that the Wall, a Wall Street Journal article or a Times article? I can't remember where it was where it was printed, but I did read it, and uh, he said, "You know, I, my odds of success." I got better. a third more yeah, plays exactly. than everybody else has. Exactly. Stop and think a third more offensive plays if I'm going for it on fourth That's down. That's right. I remember that story. So it, it, the the math behind that, the statistics are really quite fascinating. All right, so let's bring this back to uh, uh, to technical analysis. Um, I took the course the 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 course um, with the great Ralph Acampora, and one of the things I remember from that course was Ralph saying, "Fundamentals tell you what to buy; technicals tell you when to buy." True, false? What do you think of that? I think it's a pretty good tenet, um, but I'm also very fond of um, a tenet uh, that is uh, that was said by I believe Paul Tudor Jones. Uh, he said something to the effect of price moves first, fundamentals follow. Meaning that uh, price moves and then a narrative develops around the price move. So I'm not dismissing what Ralph said. Uh, I think it's right, but I think Paul Tudor Jones is... Is a little has a little bit more. Um, it's a wry observation, mm-hmm. uh, and probably a little bit more cynical. Um, it's sort of you know, stocks moved sharply, especially financials in the last week on the Trump uh, election, and now people are trying to ascribe what will happen going forward. Oh, to they're going to deregulate for whatever dive, reason. I'll leave dive those frank, but right. but it's always an after. The right, fact I'll leave narrative. those reasons to the fundamental guys. But price moved, and then. Here's the reason price moved, 
Right. Well, what good are you doing telling me after? Right. Well, so, why weren't you giving me this analysis beforehand? So I think Paul Tudor Jones's uh, you know line is uh, is pretty appropriate I, there. I don't think it's cynical. I think it's human nature. We we were just discussing this the other day that before the so we can talk about the Clinton Trump election before Trump won. The story was she has more money. She is a better get out the vote ground game. They have better analytics. The Trump team is kind of just flinging darts and Hail Marys and what have you. And then afterwards, the narrative completely changed. Hey, their their narrative, their, their analytics, their analytics turned out to be much better. Um, they understood what was going on on the ground in, in Wisconsin. And all these after-the-fact rationalizations, which, to be blunt, this election could have gone either way very easily. If... If the Access Hollywood tape doesn't come out, he steamrolls her. If the Comey letter doesn't take place in October, she probably beats it. Really, this could have easily broken either way. And yet everybody wants to make these broad pronouncements after the fact. It's that same exact process. Oh, now that we know what happens, let's craft a narrative. Let's craft a narrative around that. I, I find that to be... Um, absolutely fascinating. Um, so, uh, a couple of other questions I didn't get to during the regular broadcast portion. Uh, we, we just touched on, uh, on this very lightly when, when I asked, you know, what attracted you to the technical side? Was it the rigor of the discipline? Was it the, did it make sense logically? Um, was it some evidence or data that supported it? What made you say, oh, this really seems to be the way to, to go, and what I learned as an MBA student may not be the best way to, to buy and sell stocks. Uh, I'm going to try to answer it like this. Let's say that I'm a real estate broker, and I call you up, mm -hmm. and I say to you, hey, Barry, I got a place I'd like you to see. What's the first thing you say to me? You likely say to me, what does it look like? Where is it? Right. That's uh, probably akin to saying, what is the, can I look at the chart? Right. right. If, um, let's say I had a younger brother, and you had a younger sister, and we would like them to sort of, you know, meet. Perhaps they can go out on a date, and we introduced the idea to each of them separately. What's the first thing that they would say to us? What does that person look like? Right. I think it's appropriate to think of it the same way with respect to charts. I mean, you have to look at something to be able to have an idea as to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Billy Bean popularized Moneyball, but guys in the business will tell you that you still have to watch baseball players play. That's the reason teams pay scouts to go watch high school and college players. They have to see if they can play. Uh, it's sort of like getting a high school kid or a kid who played uh, in a league that wasn't a strong league and he hit 600. Well, is that a legit 600 versus a kid who may have played in a league that was really tough who hit four and a quarter? I don't know. Maybe you need to see them play to be able to determine who's right. really the better player. So I think you have to look at what you're thinking about with respect to stocks, indexes, yields, currencies, commodities across the board. I've asked a number of people, if you were only able to look at one thing, would you take a research report or would you take the chart? And invariably, everybody says, even non-technicians, I have to see the chart. I can't well, just I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think charts are the language of Wall Street. No matter who comes in to make a presentation, uh -huh. it could be uh, uh, an overview analyst from 
Hong Kong. It could be an overview analyst from Australia, wherever. It could be somebody here in town, one of the II-ranked overview people. When they come in, their presentation packages are chock full of charts. And so it may not be that they're technically oriented, but they are chart oriented. And I'm, I really believe charts are the language of Wall Street. So given how much computing power is at everybody's desk or even in your pocket on, on your phone, how, how does that change the world of technical analysis when everybody can access a chart anytime, anywhere? What, what does that do to the field? I, I think it's actually made it stronger, mm -hmm. right? I think it has made it more rigorous because people can check really quickly by looking at what you're looking at. Uh -huh. uh, again, I'll go back to Steve Chauvin's line, it's the singer, not the song, right? Mm -hmm. It's the interpretation that means more. But I think there's a certain, there's a greater degree of rigor with respect to technicals that wasn't there in the past when it was only, I don't want to say controlled, but, but, but let's say dominated by a few. Right. Because it was so hard to do these disciplines, right? Everything was pretty much done by hand. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it's so widely dispersed uh, that I think everybody has a flavor for it. And I think that's a very good thing for technical analysis. That, that's interesting. So you, you referenced the, the impact of the Fed earlier um, and the impact of algos. What, what has high-frequency trading done to the way charts look and feel? Um, I actually think high, when, when Michael Lewis uh, wrote the book with, about Brad Fukuyama. Um, Flash Boys. I, yeah, I thought that that was the smokescreen. Not that I'm not dismissing the book. I'm not dismissing high-frequency trading. But I think high-frequency trading was getting the blame for something that it shouldn't be getting the blame for. Right. I think the real risk to our business uh, is in the ETF uh, uh, side of the business. Really? Yeah. Uh, explain. Uh, so I, I have a pet theory about bonds, but explain why you think... ETFs are are so uh, problematic. Uh, I, I don't. Well, they're not problematic when we go up. They, <laughs> they may okay. be problematic when we go down. I think because people don't understand them. For example, if you call your broker and say, "I'm going to buy an order of spiders," the mm -hmm. SPY, you buy spiders, but you've created an unnatural bid for every stock in the S and P 500. Sure. Absolutely. And I think most people who use those ETFs don't understand that. And I also think that if you have a portfolio of individual stocks and you add in an ETF, let's say the spider, your risk profile has changed because some of the stocks you already own are in the spider. Right. So your risk parameter is not what you thought it was. You've actually created sort of a derivative product uh, and a leverage product by using a simple ETF. So, so years ago, we had the S&P 500, we had the Dow Industrials. But you couldn't very easily trade them. You could go out and buy each of the components in them, but you couldn't just push a button and say, I want this, and it was done. Uh, so when you say ETFs have, have impacted this, you, it, it's not the index itself. It's that there's a trading vehicle For the that's, that's really easily accessible. Right. And I, I don't think a lot of people understand how ETFs are made and unmade. I'm not certain I understand that. <laughs> well, what little I know about it is normally something like uh, maybe the S&P, the spiders aren't a good example, but you take another ETF um, or GLD for that matter, um, and it has some components. And most of the time when you're buying and selling it, you're just buying and selling that component. There are, there are ARBs who will basically identify when it gets out of whack with the underlying holdings and buy this and sell that in order to bring it into into um, 
appropriate balance. But sometimes the underwriter is making more units when the demand is overwhelming. We saw that with GLD on the way up. It wasn't a finite matter of GLD shares. They were actually making more as the demand had blown up from, let's call it 05 to 2010. And then as that unwinds on the way down, they start taking those units apart and selling the actual gold futures or whatever paper they're using. Yeah. It, it, it's not just this is a closed-end fund that's trading based on supply and demand. There are components that go into it. Yeah, no doubt, which is why I think it's very hard to understand those things. So it's okay on the upside? It's a problem on the downside? Well, is I that, think it's- Is a, that the, concern, the, the Is that the balance of risk? Uh, I don't think we. I don't think anybody is understands, and I, I'm, I'm at the forefront of not understanding what it could <laughs> mean on the downside. We haven't seen it. But I do recall- uh, so it wasn't August 15, it would probably have been August 2014, where we were down really sharply over a few days. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was some dislocation with respect to ETFs, and ETFs that were sort of uh, supposed to be um, more stable were mm -hmm. marked down tremendously. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was, uh, you know, sort of a, a preview of what could happen. But uh, again, I'm not, I don't think I can take a guess as to what it could look like it might look. It might be fine. It might be well contained. It might not be. I don't know. I mean, there was still plenty of ETFs. Not that there was as nearly as much money in them, but oh eight oh nine. There were there were the spiders, the Qs, the diamonds. Yeah, were, but yeah, but I I think the uh, the the there's active, trillions more yeah, today. Yeah, the active versus passive now is has really you know uh, the the ratio has shifted, and and the rate of change for assets going into passive versus assets going into active has really uh, benefits the, 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 the passive mm. side of the business of which the ETFs are, 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 are Bill McNabb of, of uh, Vanguard says we look at this wrong, that it's not active versus passive, it's expensive versus That's cheap. fine. That's fine too. It's, yeah, uh, but that's we could characterize it like that too. Right. Yeah, that he's he believes that's what's been driving Well, this. sometimes uh, you know, uh, expensive versus cheap and then cheap becomes expensive. <laughs> Right, that that certainly is is a uh, is a possibility. Assuming there's no risk management in a in a downside and downside move, and ETFs get shellacked. So there were one or two other questions I wanted to to go over, um, and you you implied this, but I want to explore uh, a little more. Um, the advancement of technology. What has this done for technicals? What does this mean? Uh, to trading in the market? Uh, I think the effect on technical analysis is, is incalculable. Really? It's, I mean, uh, the Bloomberg terminals, what you can do on the Bloomberg terminals. It's insane. It's totally insane. We, we, our office laughs. It's like, I feel like we're barely scratching I mean, the just surface. to give you an idea. So the other day, I, I, I did a relative ratio uh -huh. of, the, of a group of Macau gaming stocks right. to Paddy Power, which is the, the Ireland-based- right. Uh, London traded online betting. Mm -hmm. I mean, 10 years ago, I couldn't have done that. Right. Uh, 20 years ago, it was inconceivable. And if you did it, you had to use, do a calculator if you had one or a spreadsheet if you had uh, a Lotus right. 1, 2, 3. Uh, uh -huh. you know, to, and then I can do it with, with, with a handful of keystrokes on Bloomberg. That's... It's crazy. Yeah, that's amazing. Amazing. So what does this do to the the process of learning how to chart? And what does it do to the market having all this 
technical horsepower. Well, I, it's another reason that I think it's more appropriate for me to try to stick with longer term trends mm -hmm. rather than trying to be a trader because I can't figure that I'm going to be any better than any machine. Right. And you and John Henry. Yeah. I can't figure that I'm going to be any better than somebody who is a trader. I'm not a trader. I'm an analyst. Right. And so I think my strength is trying to stick with trend rather than trying to, uh, you know, be able to trade better than somebody who's doing it uh, every single minute they're in their chair. So you referenced trend earlier. Let, let's talk about trend as opposed to patterns and, and mean reversion. What makes trend so significant? Because I think when you have the trend right, you're bailed out of your mistakes. When you have the trend right, well, what are the mistakes when you have the trend right? Sometimes you overthink your positions. I'll use you as my example. Let's say you bought something today. Mm-hmm. Invariably, you come in on Monday morning, you're questioning yourself whether or not you should have bought that. Tuesday, you're doing the same thing. And you do that every single day that you own that item. Right. Until you get rid of it. But sometimes our best decisions are made stepping away from the screen or the terminal, whatever you want to say, and trying to conceive of that item within its trend. And you might say, okay, I get it. That stock might have some difficulties because I might have not had the best entry point. Right. But overall, it is in an uptrend, and because it's in an uptrend, I'm going to give that stock the benefit of the doubt on any pullback. Now, you might have to set up a risk parameter for yourself that says, okay, I know it's in an uptrend, but if it breaks some percentage right. retracement level, I don't care what that trend says. I have to reduce my position because it impacts the rest of my portfolio. Mm -hmm. But I think... When an item is in an uptrend and you are long that item, it deserves the benefit of the doubt, meaning that, you know, it can get knocked around a little bit, but the trend is not broken. And before I get to my favorite questions, I would be remiss if I did not ask you, you were at Lehman Brothers in the middle of the 90s. That had to be a hop in place at that time. What, what was that like? It was a great place. I worked with a guy named Steve Chauvin. I've mentioned his name a few times uh, mm -hmm. today. He's um, He was exceedingly patient and kind with me. He answered uh, millions of my questions. Uh, he's uh, He was, he still is one of the quippiest guys in the business. Quippiest. Quippiest. I mean, he's never at a loss for a, a quippy comeback. Uh, and you, you just laugh because he was just so darn fast with them. Lehman was a great place. He was a great place. I just had a chance to be the technical guy at Arnhold and S. Bleichroder, and I thought it was a chance to you know, sort of be... Uh, That's why you jumped. You yeah. went from one of many yeah, it to wasn't, the guy. It wasn't because of any, you know, I was um, displeased on, on the other side. I right. just said, you know, here's an opportunity for myself. Um, I asked us a uh, Jeff DeGraff um, reference, who was Lehman's chief uh, technical He guy. replaced me at Lehman Brothers. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. hilarious. He he said, uh, he goes, he goes, I assure you it's dumb luck, but he handed his resignation in the day of the all-time high yes. in Lehman Brothers. Pretty good timing. Yeah, so uh, it, it, to set up uh, Ren Macro. Yeah. Um, so I go, that that's how I, you know a guy's a good technician, <laughs> is he quits a publicly traded company, and, and that marks the high of the day. All right, so let's jump to my favorite questions I ask all my guests. Um, you you told us about your background. You said you got an MBA from Fordham. what is now Gabelli School of Management, but uh, it's at Fordham. Did you do anything between school and Wall Street, or you went right from right from college, right from grad school to to finance? That's right. Yeah, right. Straight in. in. Yeah, nothing in between. And um, 
Obviously, I'm going to ask you who your early mentors are. Steve Shobin is going to be one of them. Right. Uh, my very first boss was a guy named Tom McKee. He was a great boss. He taught me how to do my job responsibly. Uh-huh. And then I worked for Ken Safian at Safian Investment Research, and he gave me a lot of freedom to do a lot of things for him, and it was a great learning experience. Steve Shobin, I, I can't say enough about. Uh, I worked for a guy named Jeff Collier and John Arnhold oh, at sure. Arnhold and S. Bleischroeder, and both gen- both were gentlemen to me. And... Um, while at Soros Fund Management, I worked for Robert Soros, who was a gentleman to me as well, uh, a very uh, a guy who was always open to technicals and um, and looking at markets and charts. And I've been fortunate for the last five years to work for a guy named Scott Besson, who encourages imaginative imaginative thinking. He's always interested in listening to an idea. He's really pragmatic, and he um, he's instilled confidence because he's allowed me the freedom to make a mistake. And I don't want to. I don't want to dismiss that point. Uh, uh, you know, we don't want to make mistakes, but you make them. And, it's the nature of the yeah, business. If so, you're a 400 hitter, you're a rock star. Right, and you're still uh, making out six out of 10 times. Um, so he, uh, he, he, um, he understands the mistake part of the business, thankfully for me, and I'm, I'm lucky to be a part of uh, KeySquare and with him. So what other investors influenced how you approach uh, markets and investing? Uh, so I've tried to listen to anything uh, or read anything that these people have said, and some of them I worked with and for. So Steve Chauvin, Scott Bessent, Howard Marks, who is a value guy, and anything right. he's ever written, I've tried to read You know his memos uh, when they are- you know seemingly... Every quarter. Right. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller, George Soros, Paul Jones, and I really, um, I really appreciate anything Nassim Taleb has to say. I, I really like his common sense- sort of contrary approach to uh, uh, to the business and to the thinking in the business. Very interesting. Let, let You mentioned reading. Let's talk about some books. What are some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, investing, or uh, otherwise? Okay, so uh, I really liked uh, a, a book about the Comanches called The, the Empire of the Summer Moon, uh, which was really, really a fantastic book. Really? Yeah, just great. Uh, I really liked that a lot. Uh, really liked it a lot. Uh, with respect to uh, to market stuff, Market Wizards by Jack Schwager, I sure. think is a is a, a required reading. More Money Than God. Um, I really liked The Creature from Jekyll Island, which uh-huh. was by Edward Griffin. That was about the start of the Federal Reserve. Right. Uh, one of my favorites of all time is The Lords of Finance uh, by Liaquad Ahmed. Ahmed, yeah. Ahmed. And the subtitle of the book is The Bankers Who Broke the World, which I think is as good as it gets. Uh, Manias, Panics, and Crashes by Charles Kindleberger. Mm-hmm. Shut Up and Deal by Jesse May. Um, I'm a big sports uh, sports book guy as well. I, re- I recently read a, a biography about Ty Cobb, which sort of changed the way people um, originally thought about Cobb. Um, he was supposed to be really hard charging, spikes out, no uh, fooling around type. He of guy. was. Uh, he played really hard, and uh, I'd say back then it was sort of a uh, you know kill or be killed in baseball. I know I'm making too much of it, but um, there was no fraternizing. Uh-huh. But he was thought to have been a bad guy. Uh, I don't necessarily think that he was a bad guy in this new biography uh, would would would, uh, would say that he wasn't. A, a newer and gentler tycoon. Yeah, something like that. Um, so since you've joined finance all those years ago, what has changed? What do you think is the most significant changes in the industry over the past 25 years. When we got into the business, there was a tremendous broker-client 
component of the business, which yep. to a great degree doesn't uh, exist now. It's more of an asset gathering component where by then it was more transactional. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I can remember a lot of guys that I knew in the business, they started their career making cold calls. I don't know. Is it is it better or worse, these, this change? Is this, is this now, is that a better structure or, or do you lose something? Uh, I think what's changed is that it was easier then to come up with some sort of sentiment read for the market. I think it's harder now. Uh -huh. uh, and with the individual investor in an asset gather, you know, having been asset gathered rather than uh, via the old broker method, I think it's harder to figure things out in that regard. But it's a natural evolution. Uh, I think the advent and ubiquity of ETFs, the continued involvement of central bankers, the evolution of central bankers from behind the scenes practitioners of the Hippocratic Oath to virtual financial celebrities, those are all tremendous changes over the last 25 years. Financial celebrities. Yeah, that's the way I tend to think of them. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Um, or does it depend on the celebrity? <laughs> no, I, I, I think... Um, uh, I, I think that there's a major shift occurring where investors are moving away from the belief of the omniscience of central bankers. Uh -huh. In fact, in my mind, uh, that has been a bubble in its own right. And I think that we are realizing that central bankers are far from omniscient. Well, everybody remembers Greenspan as the maestro, and it, he left uh, as chairman, and then it didn't take all that long for that reputation to really unwind. Right. The financial crisis certainly didn't didn't right. help his reputation. Right. The guy who looked like he was never wrong suddenly, oh, maybe this guy was never right. He just got a little lucky. And it, I'm amazed that people put so much faith in central bankers after the guy was lit. I mean, I remember the, the CNBC briefcase cam. Correct. Like how thick or thin is his briefcase? And that's whether he'll raise or, or tighten. That That's how tightly right. people track that. I don't think anybody holds bankers uh, at least with the same, you know, belief that they know all the answers. They're certainly important, but did did Greenspan break the spell for that? I think we're in an environment where people are looking at, um, for lack of a better phrase, uh, the political financial elite in a different light than they had in prior cycles. I think so much, so many of their missteps are well categorized uh, or delineated, right? And that information is well dispersed, whereby perhaps it may have only been in prior cycles people in our business who are aware of who the head of the central bank was, right? The public knows that not only does the public know who the the head of the central bank is. They know there's a central bank. You go back 20 years, they had no clue there was I mean, even and, such a and thing. Every, every day you turn around, there's another central banker. Speaking somewhere, yeah. so being I covered. That, being... Yeah, I think that they're ubiquitous, uh, both with their presence and their comments. And uh, I, I think that they're go they'll run through their cycle just like every other item runs through a you, cycle. You mentioned Malaby's More Money Than God. Have you gotten around to his new tome on Greenspan? I have not. I have the book. I haven't even cracked it open yet. I'm really curious because um, my head of research, Mike Batnick, like you, loved More Money Than God, and that's another book I haven't gotten. I actually started reading it right after I finished reading something else, and they were so similar in who they looked at, and I said, you know, I'm going to put this aside right. a little bit and come back to it, but I know a number of people who just love that book, think it's great. I thought it was terrific. Really? So I'm going to move that up in my 
uh, uh, up in my queue. So you mentioned you played ball in school. What do you do to relax outside of the office? What do you do to stay mentally and physically fit so you can do your job? Uh, listen, like a lot of guys, I like to go to the gym. I like to be active. I like to spend a little time walking at, at, down at the Bronx Riviera, mm-hmm. which is otherwise known as Orchard <laughs> Beach. Um, the so, Bronx Riviera. So things like that. How do you you are you in um, Bronxville? Where, where do you live? No, I'm, in, I'm a Westchester guy, but listen, uh, driving down to Orchard Beach from Lower Westchester is, is an minutes, easy thing to do. Less, yes, yeah, right. a very easy thing to do. That that's pretty uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, so you've been mentored along in your career. What sort of advice would you give uh, a recent college grad or a millennial who is just starting their career and said, "Hey, John, I'm thinking about going into technicals." What what would you say to them? Uh, I'd offer no advice, but I'd offer some suggestions. Okay, I'd say listen intensely, mm-hmm. ask a ton of questions, and read everything you can. Everything listen, and anything. Listen intensely, ask lots of questions, and read just about anything you can. Not only finance, because I think sometimes your best thinking about finance is when you're not thinking about finance. Sure. No, it could no be because you're reading that. a biography about Billy Martin. It could be because you're reading about the Comanches and Empire of the Summer Moon. It could be because you're reading Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. I don't know, but I think you should read as much as you can. That that is not an uncommon theme. A number of people who have passed through these doors, billionaires, fund managers, Nobel Prize winners have all said the same thing, that the two themes that come up over and over again, reading, and you got you to gotta be in a position to get lucky because a little luck goes a long way. And our last question, what is it that you know about investing in technicals today that you wish you knew 25 years ago? I mean, everything. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wish I knew everything then that I know now, and, and, and I haven't learned anything, I think, in the last 10 years. Why? Say that again. Because you, I think, I, I, I wish I knew then what I know now, but I feel like even though I've picked up a lot in the last 10 years, there's still mm-hmm. so much to learn. And I think every single day you go to work, you know, juiced, not only because you want to win, but because it's a learning environment. It's an active learning environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lucky environment to be in. That, that's a really interesting answer. John, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with John Roke. He is Managing Director and Technical Analyst at KeySquare Capital Partners. Is that Capital right? Capital Management. KeySquare Capital Management. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 100 and let's call it 12 uh, previous podcasts We've done. Uh, we enjoy your comments and feedback. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank Charlie Vollmer, my engineer, uh, Taylor Riggs, our booker, and Michael Batnick, who is the head of uh, research for us. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America, North America. Member FDIC.